is burning. Welcome to World is Burning, the podcast for your climate anxiety. I am Olivia. And I'm Elise. And today we're doing our first official book club. Technically, we did one. We did like a writing club, kind of. Yeah, like a literary episode. But this is our first, yeah, like full book club. And I don't think you necessarily have to have read the book in order to listen to this. Definitely not, actually. Yeah. But obviously, if you've read Silent Spring, you'll understand everything that we're talking about. But it's really, I think the whole point of this book was to be very accessible and very, Mm -hmm. um, like, in plain language, even though she talks about a lot of biological concepts. Yeah. I don't know. What did you think of the book? Like, so we decided to do this kind of just because it's Silent Spring is like the book that launched the environmental movement. That's what you hear about it. Like it's kind of seen as this legendary thing. And then especially this being Earth Week, I feel like I've heard, um, you know, that this is what launched the environmental movement, which kind of makes me the modern environmental movement, which kind of makes me cringe. But like also. Yeah. I mean, just for like a book that was written in the 60s, I feel like it's referenced constantly by mm-hmm. people who became environmentalists back then and by like people now like it's just always mentioned um mm-hmm. and so I, I feel like we decided to read it because like like to figure out why or like you know see for ourselves why everyone is so astounded by this book yeah and i had to keep reminding myself like every time as I was reading it, that when she was like, in present day, we don't have this information. I was like, oh, dang. And then I was like, wait, this was written 60 yeah. years ago. Like, we might have this information <laughs> yeah. by now. Yeah. Although there are certain points where, like, she's talking about how we don't really have the science for it. And maybe it exists more now, but it's still not at the level that we would like it to be at. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think my favorite, um, one of my favorite, like, we just found this information out moments was the bit about the uh, mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell. Um, <laughs> she was like, we just found out the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And it's awesome. Uh, and I was just like, yes. Um, yep. And then you drilled it into the heads of every kid of the next several generations. So That is the only science fact <laughs> American children would remember. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if they didn't go into a scientific field um so so yeah I just thought it was it was funny to like because a lot of the conversation seemed like so uh relevant to now um and then yeah like little things would be like we don't know this and I mean I feel like finding information out about chemicals or like verifying it is a really long tough process mm-hmm. um so like probably a lot of stuff took way longer to solidify than maybe it would have otherwise. But yeah, it, that, it, that was a funny thing to like remind myself of that it is a 60-year-old book. Right. But it also speaks to its, yeah, like you said, it's relative, relativity? No, that's not the word. It, it speaks to like how important the information is and how like groundbreaking it was of how like relevant it seems now. Um, okay. And so just like a tiny bit of background, if you've never heard of Silent Spring, you're still listening to this. Um, the book came out in 1962. It was written by Rachel Carson, who was a biologist and a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, she, it's known as the book that, um, I guess set into motion the ban for DDT, Mm -hmm. um, the chemical used in 
chemical spraying as a pesticide. Um, and it's also um, largely credited with the creation of the grassroots movement um, to demand protection of the environment, um, especially through regulations. So the version of the book that I read had an introduction by Linda Lear that I just thought was really good at kind of like encapsulating what Rachel Carson's life was like. So if I can read a couple things from that, because I think it's interesting context. Um, so, I mean, an important thing to know is that I think about a year after the book came out, um, Rachel Carson died of cancer. And so mm -hmm. she didn't see like a lot of the um, the ways that this book turned into a success and like has become so long lasting. But she also, I think it's interesting that she grew up um, in the Pittsburgh area. So like she was born in 1907. So whatever, like growing up kind of in the 20s when Pittsburgh was turning into like an iron and steel capital and then also being very polluted by like um, Linda Lear said that her town of Springdale was sandwiched between two huge coal-fired electric plants and transformed into a grimy wasteland, its air fouled by chemical emissions, its river polluted by industrial waste. So, like, that she kind of grew up at this time when so much transition was happening, mm -hmm. um, especially in the environment. And then, yeah, she, like, kind of went back and forth between, like, bio biology and scientific research and then also writing. And... Silent Spring, and she has, has other books that she wrote previously, but it was kind of like yeah. a combination of her two loves. And so making like the language accessible, but also offering, um, you know, easy to understand explanations of really complicated science. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I mean, I think she did a wonderful job of and then like giving examples. Um, so like I could visualize what she was talking about. I think she did a really amazing job at that. Um, right. And because uh, her books are undersea and under the sea wind uh, mm -hmm. uh, and the sea ar around us and the edge of the sea. Um, and I think it's really cool. I kind of I actually haven't I didn't like look it up before this, but she has a an article called Help Your Child to Wonder. And mm -hmm. I feel like she did a lot with like trying to like capture the magic of the natural world. Um, and science and all that stuff. And I feel like that mm -hmm. like comes through in her book super well. Like she just kind of makes like it's very like awe inspiring, I guess, and and very cool in the way that she helps you understand something and also appreciate it. Yeah, exactly what you said that she kind of has this like, I don't know, she says like a kinship with other forms of life and that that comes mm -hmm. through. I feel like there's also it's so linked to the idea of like, indigenous knowledge and not mm -hmm. working against nature but working with nature and that's something she talks about a lot is like um that this turn to chemical pesticides and the use of chemicals um not only without having sufficient research on their long-term outputs but also not even putting that much thought into like how it affects the larger ecosystem i, I had a quote somewhere that was yeah. like she said we're um we're a society of specialists where no one's thinking about like what else is happening. You know, you're just yeah. thinking about, okay, we have to get rid of, for some reason, we have to get rid of the termites or whatever, um, but not yeah. thinking about how that affects all other yeah. parts of the food chain. There's, there's a quote that she says, uh, how could intelligent beings seek to control a few unwanted species by a method that contaminated the entire environment 
and brought the threat of disease and death even to their own kind. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, on top of the like, yeah, messing with, you know, one species, not understanding how that species is, you know, linked to all the other like species in the environment. But like, yeah, just like you're literally (laughs) there's like a beetle that you don't like and you're literally poisoning yourself to like not Mm -hmm. have that beetle. Like what? Mm -hmm. Like how? Why? Yeah. And one other thing that's cool about this, so, like, I feel like it's sort of a book of a lot of anecdotes Mm -hmm. mixed in with, like, scientific um, studies and then also with, like, this sort of poetic language of um, connection to nature. Mm -hmm. But I would think, you know, she tells all these stories that are just so horrifying of, you know, kids that are playing in the yard and the next day they pass away because the person next door was spraying um, chemicals and yeah. stuff but she doesn't use like as scary as those things are and just horrifying as they are to read there's some like I don't know kind of like what you were saying there's this like love that's within it that it's not like gawking at those um, events for happening but it's sounding an alarm it's very like I don't I don't I'm just like trying to like capture the way that it feels it feels very much like if you're at like a, <laughs> a funeral and you're like celebrating the life of the person and you're like wow what a good time like what a cool person um like trying to celebrate them even though you're obviously like there under like bad circumstances like it feels like a celebration of the earth and a celebration of nature and like each very small like beetle and bug and like weird little organism in the dirt even if we're talking about them in the context context of something that is really bad and sucks it's like it feels like a celebration of everything, which I makes it like <laughs> a pleasant read, um, and mm-hmm. which is you know part of the reason why I feel like it's such like a lasting book is because it you feel inspired <laughs> while reading it. I feel like yeah, and Ding, that's so powerful, like that idea of yeah a celebration of life, but like with the grief of everything else. I feel mm-hmm. like that's a really good description of just. Um, the climate activism, I, that's how I feel when I go to, like, a protest. Mm-hmm. It's, like, you're simultaneously so devastated to be there and, like, to to try and, like, use your small voice against these um, forces that you see is really detrimental. But then there's also this, like, aspect of community and, like, music and creativity and mm-hmm. joy that, like, comes out of that, that, like, all of those things can be wrapped up in the same difficult emotions. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so I feel like something... I, I guess we said like that this book is best known as um, you know resulting in a ban of DDT, especially in the U.S. Um, but I also think it's so interesting. I didn't do too much research into like what happened outside of the book, but mm-hmm. just with um, her being attacked by the chemical industry and like yeah. um, the chemical industry trying to pin Rachel Carson as like a hysterical woman. Um, in that intro, I was talking about. They said that industry spent a quarter of a million dollars to discredit discredit um, Rachel Carson's research and malign her character, which I, I didn't know. There's like a really interesting economic aspect that's kind of behind all of these things. Yeah. Um, which uh, like maybe this is sort of a different subject, but I think it's so interesting when she was talking, for example, about like the Japanese beetles. I think it was that mm-hmm. example where 
Um, she talks about the devastating effects of using certain chemical sprays that were like sprayed over entire towns and, you know, yeah. the cats were all going to the vet at the same time and all this stuff was happening. But also that spray had to be used over and over again. And each time, you know, putting mm-hmm. a plane over cost thousands of dollars. Whereas there was another method of um, basically using the beetles against themselves to create this milky disease, I think is what it was called. Um, basically... Like using a was that with the a, moths where like if you take one moth with like a certain disease and you like mush them up and you put them in in like a, you dilute them and then you spray them everywhere it like yeah yeah I think it was, was I it thought beetles? it was the beetles okay yeah but anyways I mean either way bugs one one species <laughs> and so the idea was like that you spray this over or it doesn't necessarily have to be a spray but like it's powder or whatever sprinkle it over a certain area. And it's um, it hurts that specific animal because that's mm-hmm. what they um, like because it's their specific species that would be affected by that disease, but doesn't affect anything else. Mm-hmm. And it's like the reason that they didn't want to use that, she explains, is because it was more expensive than the chemical spray, but not taking into account the well, first of all, the devastation that was happening from other aspects of the chemical spray but also not taking into account that you had to do it over and over again and that it was like yeah causing a lot more harm than it was technically worth but like yeah it's that idea of getting I don't know and maybe I'm going off on like way different tangent but I think about this with like the zero waste movement and like I feel like I don't know for example I just bought something that I probably don't need but I'm very excited about which is Mm -hmm. a reusable lighter um Mm. and so it's one of the things that cost me like twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously much more than a like matches or um, a normal lighter would be. Mm-hmm. But I can use it over and over again, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to have to keep buying different lighters. And even if, in theory, like I'd have to use it for six years or something like that, probably more for it to like for the cost to pay off. There's like other benefits that go around it. And so, but I think it's so hard to get people to think in that way, especially if your mm-hmm. only goal, if your job is to get rid of the Beatles. Yeah. Like people have a one track mind of where they're going to go with that. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I mean that it ties into just like talking about like funding green initiatives or just like like solving problems when it comes to climate change as a whole and like how you're going to pay for that it's too expensive and it's like the idea of like investing money up top uh, Mm -hmm. versus like paying to fix things and paying to do little band-aid patch fixes over and over and over again over the years that that's going to add up to be a lot more than if you were to just actually fix the problem yeah Um, and like maybe sit and think about it for a second and like find the best solution rather than just like spraying poison on it or whatever. Um, right. Without even understanding really like how that like the effects of that. Yeah. One of the quotes. OK, I think this is kind of relevant. So mm-hmm. this is a Rachel Carson quote. She said, um, it seems reasonable to believe that the clear that the more clearly we can focus our attention on the wonders and realities of the universe about us, the less taste we shall have for the destruction of our race. Wonder and humility are wholesome emotions, and they do not exist side by side with a lust for destruction. Which mm-hmm. I just think I just think of that especially like the humility aspect, and then also I, I connect wonder with like a love for nature, but. Um, 
asking people to have humility and to admit that they don't know, like, mm-hmm. that you could not possibly know um, the ramifications of something that, like, you're spraying all over the town. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you have to admit that you don't know something yeah. in order for that to stop is, like, yeah, so important but so hard to get people to do. Yeah. Also, like, we're still, like, finding bugs and stuff. Like, we're discovering new insects all the time. Every year, there's, like, a handful of articles <laughs> that… Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before. That have, like, a new frog or, like, an… But, like, an actual… Not, not just, like, me, an American, learns about a weird lizard in another country. But like, <laughs> That's true. like science discovers a new frog or a new beetle or like mm-hmm. something that like we didn't know existed. Um, and just like the fact that we're still discovering new like bugs and, and animals and stuff just like shows like how little we know about ecosystems as a whole, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, cause yeah, like it, it, that's just kind of crazy to me, I guess that there's like, Hey, this frog, <laughs> no one's found this frog before that's new. Um, right. I also think it's so interesting. Like, so I feel like a lot of the anecdotes in the book are talking yeah, about the ecosystem as a whole and like the food chain. And so how, um, especially like on a microscopic level, mm-hmm. how we don't necessarily know how those Mm-hmm. living beings are going to be affected but like if you're going up the food chain then you're getting higher and higher concentrations of aldrin ddt whatever the chemical is mm-hmm. and so then it's like it could be harmful to the lowest on the food chain but it's most harmful to those highest on the food chain and then like once you reach that kind of threshold then that's when everything can get wiped out mm-hmm. and obviously that completely disrupts the ecosystem like overpopulation of certain animals underpopulation of others but yeah how that like whole thing can be messed up just by something that is laid flat across yeah which is just crazy Uh, that's just not taken into account another thing that just continually blows my mind in pretty much every story we do Mm -hmm. but is just the idea that like so much connects back to world war ii Mm. um and like the world wars in general but um, she talks about that a fair bit, especially when talking about like man-made chemicals. Okay, yeah. A lot of those were created for um, war. I'm trying to think of a specific example that we have. Um, but like a lot of those chemicals were created for warfare. And then like she talks about um, one of the things that led to this myth that DGT was harmless was that it was sprayed over a bunch of soldiers refugees and prisoners in order to combat lice Mm -hmm. and since there were no like immediate effects to that they kind of determined okay ddt is safe like we'll be uh, all fine which first of all for those people is like messed up that it was just sprayed over them to to get rid of lice which is yes a problem but also like a, a livable problem if you will yeah um but then the other thing with that is the reason that that wasn't so immediately impactful was because the DDT was used in a powder form, which then now, or not now, but like in the 60s and 50s and 60s when it was used, it was dissolved in oil, which made it incredibly toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing she talks about too is that like you're, we're not living one chemical lives, right? You're not, mm-hmm. you, you are impacted by these chemicals, whether you like it or not, even today, but especially at the time, like just by being a human that eats food eats vegetables that have been sprayed, you know, goes out in your yard, um, visits a farm, you know, like all of those 
different kinds of things. Plus, then if you also work at a factory or um, come into contact with these in some other way, then all of a sudden, like, there can be a threshold that you that you hit where, like, it, it really it starts to affect you immediately. Yeah. I mean, and also the idea of even if you understand the health impact of one chemical that they're not necessarily studied together and like what happens mm-hmm. if they mix. So like mm-hmm. if you have a salad of like lettuce that was sprayed with one pesticide and tomatoes that were sprayed with another and cucumbers that were sprayed with another, like each of those things might have like a threshold or like a certain, you know, effect or whatever. But then when they're combined, like mm-hmm. there's not necessarily or there there wasn't necessarily, you know, science saying like how those chemicals reacted together. Yeah. Um, and affected people yeah another thing that ties back to economics too is she talks about the lack of research that's done on these because like um she talks about an example in illinois where there was um, a a chemical spray that had very obvious effects over not only the bird population but other Mm -hmm. you know human population pet population of a certain town in illinois and how they had proposed in the budget to have like a field assistant who would go in and study the wildlife of that area and how that kept getting cut out of the budget to eventually like years later there was one field assistant doing the job of like several people just to kind of try and get some research on the ground but then at that point it was like you know still valuable research but not nearly as valuable as if they had been like actually studying it as it was happening Mm. um and so it's like this connection to funding also Mm -hmm. um that's just kind of scary. Yeah. Also, like in terms of like just like money and economics and like all that jazz, um, I really feel like sometimes looking at things, it feels like such like a catch-22 situation where like if there was like an outside observer like looking at stuff that we do, um, mm-hmm. they'd be like, why why are they doing that? Like, why are they mm-hmm. like, why are they doing like six billion steps and all this like making all this work? When like it's fine, like you don't have to do anything. Like it's a perfect system, because um, there's there's a quote um, about like the fight against sagebrush in the West. Mm. So it was outlining how sage is like the perfect plant for the landscape. It holds everything together. Like the water works really well with it. It's just like yeah, lasts in the winter. Super efficient. It's perfect. <laughs> um, but. Americans decided that for some reason grass was better. So the quote is, uh, you know, yet the program of sage eradication has been underway for a number of years. Several government agencies are active in it. Industry has joined with enthusiasm to promote and encourage an enterprise which creates expanded markets not only for grass seed, but for a large assortment of machines for cutting and plowing and seeding. The newest addition to the weapons is the use of chemical sprays. So basically... Like, it's just the idea of, like, taking an environment and a landscape that's, like, perfectly fine. It's evolved Mm -hmm. over time to, like, be perfect for that environment. And then people are coming in, deciding something is better and creating, like, an entire industry around it when it, like, literally doesn't. (laughs) Like, um, there's literally no need for it. But, like, people are making money off of it. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it just feels like a very, like, catch-22 digging holes and filling them up type endeavor. Um, Right. (laughs) Also, like, I feel like the – I can't remember exactly in that example, but I think the reason they wanted grass was for 
farm animals like for cows for example to eat the grass but then if you go through that whole process by the time you get to the end like the cows aren't doing so hot either especially if they've been like (laughs) you know like showing all these chemicals yeah and then like i mean can't cows eat the sage i i don't know i could be wrong about that but but like but yeah i don't know it just is dumb well, yeah, it's like going through this whole effort that's very expensive, very detrimental, but yeah. only for a goal that isn't is no longer relevant by the time you get to the end. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's just it's just crazy to see like yeah, like okay, well, why are people so stoked about this? And it's because there's like six different industries that are rearing to go to make it happen. Yeah, but really, it's like only beneficial to them. Another thing that kind of relates to that. She talks uh, quite a bit about monocropping, so like mm. single crop farming where you have a huge swath of like wheat is all you make on like a really large um, piece of land, which not a farmer, but we talk about this quite a lot in my climate change class because it's such an important mm-hmm. concept. Just the idea of using the same soil over and over for the same thing um, kills the richness of the soil. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about regenerative farming, a big part of that is like diversity And she talks quite a bit about just diversity in general and wildlife and how like if you're having infestations of certain pests, as they call them, or like insects, it's probably because of a lack of diversity. It's something that's been put off balance Mm -hmm. in the system already. And so like there was some insect that really gets its feed off of wheat plants. And so if it's like a couple of wheat plants that are in a larger farm, maybe that's not so huge a deal. But if all you make is wheat, then you're going to have a massive infestation of those animals or of those insects. And you're also going to have like no crop yield. But mm-hmm. I don't know what she said. She said, um, single crop farming does not take advantage of the principles by which nature works. It is agriculture as an engineer might conceive it to be, which just feels very accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how, yeah, systems that might seem the most efficient are like not I guess Mm -hmm. Um, or I guess it's all just like the the short-term versus long-term view right in terms of what what efficiency means right if you can get like a hundred times the normal crop yield now for the next 10 years then like and you don't know for sure if it's gonna not pan out 10 years from now yeah I don't blame farmers necessarily for like taking those odds yeah but it's just like we're paying the price for it now yeah especially when that becomes the norm Mm -hmm. Um, and then like well that's just how everyone does it and yeah like is that a good reason oh I have something um okay this is just a quote this is just a quote that I liked. Um, she said, If having endur- endured much, we have at last asserted our right to know, and if by knowing we have concluded that we are being asked to take senseless and frightening risks, then we should no longer accept the counsel of those who tell us that we must fill our world with poisonous chemicals. Um, like, basically, we shouldn't listen to those people that are telling us that that chemicals are what we absolutely need and there's no other choice, but rather mm-hmm. we should look for other directions. Um, and that just made me think of, I mean, everything to do with fossil fuel or like chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about Deepwater Horizon, which when this episode go- goes out, I think the anniversary will be the day before. Yeah. And like just this idea of that this is what we have to do in order to like maintain production and stuff like that. And that's just true like not the truth yeah and people who are like 
I feel like there's two facets, like the people who are promoting those ideas, one are profiting Mm -hmm. from it. So, of course. um, Yeah. And then two, like they're profiting off of it, which means that like, like, are they probably going to experience some effects of like negative effects of what they're um, putting out into the world? Yeah. Um, Because I mean, at this point, it's like everything is just so everywhere. But like they also Mm -hmm. have the privilege and have the means and money and whatever to like escape the like majority of the effects of whatever so like it doesn't like as much apply to them if you're in power yeah or you can get medical care that you might need or Mm -hmm. um you're not being exposed to things in one fell swoop maybe as often as the person who's actually spraying Mm -hmm. um might be which yeah i just think um that's always an interesting one of like when I've seen some people confront like CEOs and like white collar people with like polluted water and um, asking, inviting them to come into the facilities where like the work that they profit off of is being done. Mm. And they very coyly try to like get out of it or not drink the water or not go into the facility for a long period of time because they're mm-hmm. not willing to risk their own lives for that. Yeah. Even if they're telling you, okay, yeah, it's no worries. There's no science that like mm-hmm. permits otherwise. Which, okay, one thing that I do want to touch on because we decided to to that we were going to do this episode right after like I did the story on Agent Orange um mm-hmm. and like i immediately went to download the book and um in the description of it the last sentence was something like and jfk famously read this book in the summer of 1962 uh and like it that that was just how like you know popular and like widespread this book was read and mm-hmm. the idea that like that was the same year that um like operation ranch hand was like given a go um Mm -hmm. and like (laughs) this book talks about uh herbicides and how harmful they are um Mm -hmm. and just like the general chemicals and like how people handling them and doing the spraying could die or like (laughs) have like be like on the floor in convulsions if they like didn't like have the like do it correctly or whatever Mm -hmm. um and obviously the harmful effects on the environment and the people in the environment and like all that and how that was all known and then like that like those chemicals were still used and obviously they're weaponized yeah and weaponized and like how it was sprayed on countries of people um Mm -hmm. and also how the people doing the spraying also had tons of issues that, I mean, I'm assuming they weren't necessarily aware that they were at incredible risk. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just like, it, it goes back to the idea of like having, having knowledge of something and then, and having knowledge of how harmful something is and just going ahead and doing it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, like this book happened at the beginning of that. And it that just like I mean, I'm like not surprised. Like I'm it, like it's a pattern of of that of just being like, yep, we know, but we're gonna do it. Um or we're gonna protect our own first 
which is yeah. just a fucked up idea in the first place. Yeah, um, which like I mean, they weren't even like in my mind, like they weren't really even protecting their own because their own were doing the spraying mm-hmm. and like dying. Um, yeah, of terrible cancers. Um, so it's just like so fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's just really awful. Yeah, but yeah, I just like going from that story into like let's read about silent spring and then being like, wait, <laughs> right? That last sentence, I was like, wait a second, hold on, <laughs> let me compare the years real quick. Uh, cool. Yeah. Everyone knew what they exactly what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So like no excuses. Like yeah, can you imagine reading this book and then doing something like that or okaying signing off on something like that? It's horrific. Like y- you know those chemicals are going to last in the environment for years to come. You know you know everything. Like you have all of the information. Yeah, and you just go ahead, which I mean just makes it so much more like cruel from like a weaponizing standpoint and yeah, it's it, it's just crazy to me Mm -hmm. but again it's a pattern yeah without like all the chemical companies (laughs) do yeah um but then that also you know that makes you think of if everything else is tying back to like world war ii and then mm -hmm. we're talking about the the vietnam war there's there's like a profitability and also like Mm -hmm. massive resources being put into like what these chemicals are capable of, but only in the sense of like, how can we use them to hurt? You know what I mean? Not used yeah. in the sense of like, how can we uh, analyze the ecosystem and like look at the multifaceted ways that this affects it? It's no, it's just like, can we use this for or against people and the production of like goods for people? And then that's yeah. where the conversation ends. Yeah, let's let's get more contracts on the table. Let's, let's up production. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the bottom line of that. Um, an article that we were reading um, that came out recently in the LA Times is talking about DDT, and um, it says its toxic legacy can harm granddaughters of women exposed. And so it goes, um, they like profiled a couple of young women whose grandmothers were exposed to DDT, um, and just the, the long-lasting effects of what that has done to them and even like some things that have manifested in future generations that mm-hmm. weren't necessarily happening to the initial people that were exposed in the first place. But they they call DDT a forever chemical um, and compare it to other forever chemicals, which we've talked about, especially in the, our water pollution episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Silent Spring in general talks quite a bit about water pollution and also just this idea of like once those things are exposed to or are like in the cycle of groundwater and rivers and streams, it's incredibly difficult to get them out and they very quickly enter our bodies. Yeah, Um, which I will say like reading, having recently read Aaron Brockovich's book, Superman's Not Coming, and then reading mm -hmm. this book, Mm -hmm. it they feel they're just like the same book, like like if you took off the back cover yeah. of Silent Spring and like mushed it into the front part of Superman's Not Coming, like they are like obviously by very different off- authors with very different like vibes, but like content wise and just like whatever, like it's so the same that like reading mm-hmm. this book felt like I had to keep reminding myself that <laughs> it is 60 years old just For because real. like, you know, some pollution not you know it's not always about like pesticides there's a lot of other things that we're discussing in terms of forever chemicals these days 
but it's just it's all <laughs> so similar um it feels like the same conversation so mm-hmm. that is one one thing but definitely go back and listen to our water episode um because it, yeah. it's all it's all so connected yeah and i also just love the title of aaron brockovich's book superman's not coming which we again we talked about in that episode and we've talked about it before but just that idea that like there is no one hero that's going to come. You are Superman, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, or we all are. And, like, yeah. that idea that this is a problem that we're going to solve together. Like, in Silent mm-hmm. Spring, Rachel Carson talks about cancer and different forms of cancer and especially different forms of cancer that have come out of this, like, chemical age, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And she said something that I just, I don't know kind of stayed with me which was like there's not we we have this idea that there's going to be this one grand cure to cancer mm-hmm. when much more likely that's not going to be the case it's going to be these slow revelations um you know coming for for each different type of cancer each different cause like there's not going to be this one thing that cures cancer mm-hmm. which i think we know a lot more about that now um but i still like i mean it was always like if someone's studying science it was like how are you going to cure cancer like that mm-hmm. that's what a lot of people are trying to do um but more likely it's going to be a lot of small solutions and that goes for kind of everything and how like we can right the wrongs of all of this right is like by a lot of small solutions like mm-hmm. regenerative farming and diversifying crops and like allowing ecosystems to thrive on their own and like self-regulate and all of that like those are not one big thing that's going to solve the whole situation but like a bunch of small things sorry that was a, a bit of a sidetrack from the the article oh no it's fine uh but i don't know if you had anything else about about the article the mainly interesting thing was um it's tra- yeah it's talking about well, like the granddaughters specifically of mm-hmm. women that were exposed to ddt and so the two um health threats they talk about are higher rates of obesity and then also starting menstrual periods before age 11 which Mm -hmm. is just so young Mm -hmm. and like obviously plenty of people do start there especially i guess now like before the age of 11 but Mm -hmm. um i don't know that was just kind of like a a scary one to me and then also we talk about obesity a lot in the u.s and there's like i mean there's a huge amount of fat phobia worldwide Mm -hmm. but like that is just really detrimental, but it's also it's interesting to think about obesity being potentially caused by something like this, like that truly didn't um, wouldn't have affected four generations before us, right? But would affect us now. Yeah, that make it a lot much more difficult for people to regulate their weight in whatever way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I was just thinking about that. And also this article had a, another story potential. It's horrifying, but I don't I don't know anything about it, which is that one of the nation's largest manufacturers of DDT once dumped as many as half a million barrels of its waste into the deep ocean. Mm. So and maybe we'll do like a dumping episode. <laughs> I know we have called the dump. The dump. <laughs> we, we could just do a dump episode. <laughs> Because that shit is bleak and we talk about oil spills a fair bit, but I feel like they deserve a story of their own sometimes just so we can really like Mm -hmm. not. I don't even know who the nation's largest manufacturer of DDT was like I just I'm just reading that from the article. Right. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should know that. Yeah. Which I I do have a little list of. Oh, yeah. uh, Chemical companies that manufactured. So like 
Uh, probably should have done this at the top of the episode, but I mean, it it, it isn't part of the book, um, which I do think is very interesting to note. I mm-hmm. I think Rachel Carson did a really good job of telling exactly the story that needed to be told without name dropping, without stirring up specific conflict. And I think it made her argument very palatable to like read. Um, mm-hmm. And except what's that know, quote? I uh, you know I don't think that anyone needs to follow her example there but like I think she did a really good job of like not being like this company is a villain it's like the kind of like the system is the villain um the fact that this is allowed is the problem um Mm -hmm. but do you have a do you have a little quote well no I just wanted to say because you said it's palatable which I agree but then one of my favorite quotes from the book was that she said in reference to like I don't know false solutions and set and stuff she said we urgently need to end um, we urgently need an end to these false assurances, to the sugarcoating of unpalatable mm-hmm. facts. Um, yeah. Which is so true. Because, like, it's interesting how she manages to essentially make these horrible things palatable. Yeah. It's not like she's not, I mean, yes, she's not de- name dropping, which is important. But other than that, she's giving a lot of specifics and a lot of case studies that make it makes it incredibly difficult to deny anything. And if you have like an inkling of doubt in your head, she'll she'll explain why something happened, like with the DGT empowered or form or whatever it might be. Um, so it's not, but it's, she's not sugarcoating those unpalatable facts. She's just like yeah presenting them in a different way. I feel like it's kind of goes into uh, and like coming at that that quote from like a modern perspective. I feel like there's a lot of. Um, greenwashing greenwashing or from like a fossil fuel standpoint the idea of like needing to present both sides even if one side is clearly Mm -hmm. like not correct not a side scientifically um and being like well both opinions need to be shared and just like "Mm, that's not true so do we need to be or like the the idea of being like palatable and like oh well like everyone's opinion is valid but then it's like if your opinion is like poisoning people is good, like mm-hmm. that's maybe not. Or that it's not that bad. Not mm-hmm. that bad. Like that's like maybe not the best opinion. And like mm-hmm. it's okay for that to like not be valid. Um, mm-hmm. And like that's kind of a little bit how I like read into that from like today's view. Um, yeah. But anyway, so she doesn't really like name drop any um um, like chemical companies. So I did a little so we will. Wikipedia <laughs> search about DDT. A couple interesting things. So DDT was manufactured by 15 companies in the United States, including Monsanto, Seba, Montrose Chemical Company, Penwalt, and uh, Velsicol Chem- uh, Chemical Corporation. So, you know, some of those names are new on this podcast. Some of them are not. Um <laughs> Again, like Monsanto and Montrose, or is it Montrose? Uh, definitely Monsanto is being sued or brought to court in France uh, mm. for its manufacturing of Agent Orange in the Vietnam War. Um, Which we talked about. In our, yeah, a few episodes ago. I was like, I don't um, remember the episode number, but it's there. Uh, Agent Orange, I believe, is in the episode title. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just, you know, curious as to who was making these companies chemicals and then one thing that i thought was very very interesting about ddt is a like a couple different people were um involved in the actual like creation of the chemical 
But Paul Herman Mueller, he kind of made the connection with like DDT's insecticidal properties um, Mm -hmm. and like how it could be applied. And he won the Nobel Prize uh, in physiology and medicine in 1948 for his efforts. So I just think it's kind of crazy that he won uh, like a medicine Nobel Prize for realizing that DDT could be used as an insecticide. Yeah. So I I feel like the the moral is that like just because like something seems really good at the start and like super amazing and, you know, life changing. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually good. Or, yeah, if something is designed to kill a certain insect, I feel like it's important to ask what else is it killing, yeah, right? Yeah, well, that that was, that was an, there's another quote uh, that I don't think, I don't think we've read yet, but it has to do with World War II and how everything can, like, connects to, like, <laughs> World War II and also just, like, the deadliness of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, the quote is, uh, all this is, come about because of the sudden rise in prodigious growth of an industry for the production of man-made or synthetic chemicals with insecticidal properties. This industry is a child of the Second World War. In the course of developing agents of chemical warfare, some chemicals created in the laboratory were found to be lethal to insects. The discovery did not come by chance. Insects were widely used to test chemicals as agents of death uh, for man. So it's just like, like, I mean... They're, they're testing it on bugs to see if it, like, is deadly. And then they're mm-hmm. like, yep. Yep, it is. Uh, <laughs> and then they're like, but it can, maybe we can just use this to kill the bugs. But, like, the whole purpose of the test was to see if it killed living things. Yeah. <laughs> As a connection and to killing humans. Humans. And then they're like, let's spray this everywhere from planes. Yeah. Um. Hot yeah. take, war is bad. War is bad. <laughs> <laughs> that is our, uh, yeah, controversial statement of the day. Um, maybe we shouldn't adapt things discovered for war into civilian life. <sighs> um, yeah. One thing we kind of briefly touched upon, but I kind of want to go back to for a second, is there was one quote at the very top of our notes where we said, um, or she said, Only within the moment of time represented by the present century has one species, man, acquired significant power to alter the nature of the world. And so it's this idea of, like, the Anthropocene, like we talked Mm -hmm. about last episode, and, like, man um, trying to control nature as opposed to, um, like, living beings being controlled by their environment. Um, Mm -hmm. And also something that she really stresses is, like, you know, that over, over time, usually, not as in years, but like she says, millennia, life would adjust to different, you know, find a refine an equilibrium. But with the level of destruction that we're creating right now and that was being created when she wrote this book, like we don't have that millennia of time. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this false assurance of a kind of, I don't know, I was thinking about that when you're talking about like, you don't have to present everyone's opinion as a valid opinion if it's clearly um motivated by something else mm-hmm. and we've talked about previously you know climate denialists only recently not being given platforms to share their information at least not on the scale and that they were getting before where where journalists thought in order to be you know neutral they had to have a climate denialist and a climate mm-hmm. um activist and like that those 
aren't the correct platform. The, the correct platform is like a climate activist and like an entrenched liberal politician. You know what I mean? Like those yeah. are the two platforms that we need to hear them have a conversation because we don't have time for the like two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. I keep putting my hands out if, as if everyone else can see me, but I'm, yeah, I'm just imagine the the equilibrium scale. on two sides. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's called, a scale. But that like, yeah, you don't have to like, allow that because we also don't just like we just don't have time for that mm-hmm. kind of nonsense yeah also like one thing that i thought was really interesting is that like specifically since this book is primarily about pesticides is the fact that you know insects reproduce incredibly quickly like they'll have generations in you know a couple days or weeks or whatever mm-hmm. so when something new is introduced to their environment they can kind of get used to it and adapt to it and like have multiple like um generations of like adapting to something harmful mm-hmm. um you know in a couple days weeks you know by the time you're years in then like you know think of you know so many generations mm-hmm. but humans we have you know three generations a decade so like we're not so good at adapting and you mean like, a century right what did I say? Yeah, a century. <laughs> we have, I was like, I was like maybe four or five, uh, but still, dang. We have about three generations a century, not a decade. <laughs> um, so, so it takes us a hundred years to, you know, like obviously, like have three different generations, and by the time our environment that we've created for ourselves is so different from like what it looked like 100 years ago which is so different than it would look like 100 Mm -hmm. years before that and I mean like genetically speaking I feel like you know we probably haven't changed all that much in like 200 years whereas insects can you know evolve (laughs) in a week or whatever more than that Um, Mm -hmm. so we're just like in a really bad position to deal with the situation that we have presented whereas the things that we are trying to harm or or like we're trying to harm in the context of this book are like really well positioned to be able to uh, come up against something harmful and adapt to it and survive yeah so like we're just really fucking ourselves with that one yeah but then in the same sense we talk about taking care of like our our future generations and our future children and we can't do that or i guess we we have to use the time that we have as like a human lifespan mm-hmm. in order to do that because right now we're dealing with the problems of essentially rachel carson's generation and then maybe mm-hmm. the generations after her because she's old enough to be our great-grandparent um yeah i mean like we're uh, like if we want to talk about a lot of this starting in world war ii like we're coming up on the hundred year mark so like we're talking about Mm -hmm. like the century of the three generations kind of yeah that like we're dealing with the hundred year old problems and like how can we be the world war ii in a good way of a (laughs) hundred years from now (laughs) that's a great uh that's quite a quote I'm here for it. Ugh. <laughs> like, like, okay, imagine this. Like, you know the thing with John Mulaney, like, all dads are obsessed with World War II. Yeah. Like, how can we make 
all of the dads obsessed with climate, like, protection. <laughs> climate justice, um, yeah. Climate justice. Like I'm here for him. I really hope that that's what 100 years from now looks like. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of gives you, it's like, well, if you think about how much has changed in a bad way in the last century, how much can we change in a good way in the next yeah, century? Yeah. There's also a lot of good things, obviously, that have happened in the last yeah. century also. But, like, how can we balance that out and, like, reconnect with what we've lost in the last 150, whatever, a couple hundred years? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's actually something we've kind of talked about, but, like, I don't know. I just want to make sure we stress is that, like, if you haven't read this book yet, first of all, thanks for listening. Yeah. Second of all, <laughs> like... um. I think it's important to know that this is not like a doomsday book as much as it might open your eyes even 60 years later. But there's this really like, I don't know, this this hopefulness, this connection to nature and this like, um, I don't know, you said in our notes, like this inherent joy in talking about nature even in serious situations, mm-hmm. which I think is so important to cultivate. And like, so I felt like when I was reading this, even reading a lot of horrifying case studies and stuff, mm-hmm. it made me feel I didn't feel stressed and horrible reading it I felt like wow okay we have all these we have all the tools to do what we need to do we just need people like her and need to become people like her in order to actually solve the problems on like an intersectional level and not just by our like specialist lens yeah and that there are solutions Mm -hmm. just not everyone is on board with them or because certain people will be losing out on profit mm-hmm. uh, is a big, yeah. you know, hurdle to get over. The future is unprofitable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what are we going to do if we can't find problems that we need to solve for some reason? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I yeah, there definitely is a hopefulness. And like, I feel like hopefulness isn't necessarily like even the right word. There is just like, yeah, like a joy to... Mm-hmm seeing like the natural world and that that's like a good thing to be fueled by yeah yeah or also at least for me I feel like chemical spraying is not something that I think about a lot like I remember always Mm -hmm. hearing our bug sprays like not having DDT in them and Mm -hmm. you know I know what chemical sprays smell like and how unnatural that can feel Mm -hmm. um or being upset when I was younger that like weed whackers and stuff like that were killing the weeds but like Mm -hmm. Other than that, I digress. Um, that's not something that really like directly impacts my life or that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So there's mm-hmm. some like comfort, if not horror, in like making sense of something that I'm seeing happening around me, but I didn't understand why. I feel like this this book and all that this has come from the book has given me a lot of clarity on like, yeah, they just the connections of our ecosystems and then like where that disconnect kind of came from. Because she also talks about how, like, some of these chemicals were, you know, existed for decades before they were ever used in insecticides or even in, like, war, warfare, any of that. Mm -hmm. They just existed as chemicals that have been discovered. And so it's, like, there's a clear progression of how that they went from, like, things in a lab into, you know, in the water everywhere and in all of our bodies. Yeah, especially since, like, I feel like your average person doesn't need to know like kind of like what you're saying like you're not incredibly affected in your day-to-day by like chemical spraying Mm -hmm. um yeah so like your average person doesn't need to know all the ins and outs of like every chemical made in a lab 
And yeah, so like when stuff like this comes out or, you know, things come out about like chemicals today or plastics or whatever, like all of a sudden it's like, wait, what? This thing that like we're entirely surrounded by mm-hmm. is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's like so scary and overwhelming and just like, like it, it's very like, tra- like it makes you feel trapped or makes me feel trapped sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like understanding how it, happened is helpful at least for for me yeah if that's what you're you're saying like understanding the steps and how it got there a hundred percent wait can I transition us into the dump sure you just gave me the perfect in okay set you up you're talking you're talking you you just like set me up right there teed up um the just talking about like specifically plastic and seeing plastic all around you um, so I failed to mention in the last few weeks, but um, the trailer just got released for the other podcast that I work on, which is called Trace Material. Um, and we're doing a whole season on plastic and the social history of plastic that's going to come out starting in mid-June. So there's going to be six episodes like pretty much throughout the summer. I'm mm-hmm. so excited about it. It's such a cool um such a cool podcast. I'm a research assistant. Um, and I didn't work on the first season, but I feel like then I can say from a fairly neutral perspective that everyone should go back and listen to the first season, which is all about Mm -hmm. hemp. Um, And it's really interesting. Like the whole point of the podcast is to really study a material throughout the entire season and see like Mm -hmm. all the different effects of it. And the plastic episode or the plastic season, excuse me, I think is going to be really interesting. So I'll link the I'll probably link the Spotify links in our episode bio but if you go to our website worldisburning.com we'll have all the other ones um as i just i'm just really excited about this season um one of the specific plastic components that we're going to be exploring is pvc which is polyvinyl chloride which Mm -hmm. i was thinking about a lot when we were well reading this book and talking about like ddt and everything and just like yeah um the the experiences that like factory workers or people that have like a high exposure to these things like when we talked about Rob a lot and PFAS like all of those mm-hmm. chemicals have very similar stories of like factory workers especially who were told like no this is all fine nothing's happening nothing immediately mm-hmm. happened to them and so things were were pushed off and like it becomes much more difficult to um, trace something back to a specific material I didn't mean to do that but <laughs> it is called trace material yeah. um and so I, I've recommended this before, but I want to say it again. Blue Vinyl is a really great um, documentary that from like a decade ago. That's this woman like walks around with a vinyl a PVC yes. like um, like outside of her parents' house. They put this like siding on their house and she follows the, the material throughout like um, different parts of the South part of the U.S., Italy, like all these different places and kind of explores all the different stories that people have around this. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that was a long way to say that like material health and like specifically looking at materials is not something that I'd ever done before. And then now um, listening to all the interviews and like um, listening to the producers like compile the episodes for Trace Material, I'm so excited for this season to come out and to talk yeah. about it more on I'm here because I feel like it's it. so relevant. Yeah. I'm excited to hear all about that. I I will say one thing that I'm pretty excited about that just came out is um, uh, the band Flight's new album. Mm-hmm. It's really going to hurt. 
It's um, so good. It's, it's so, so good. It's so moody. It's filled with like heartbreak, like breakup songs. But they're like most of them are like good, like singing in the car songs. Like they're mm-hmm. like they're bops. So they're also just so beautiful. Like they're um, flights harmonies. You and I saw them in I just always think about yeah. this at South by Southwest we saw them in a yeah. church they, I think they played before Billie Eilish and yeah. it was just like this such uh, like such gorgeous acoustics to hear them their harmonies are like nothing yeah. else um yeah and I so feel yeah like, yeah if you see if you have the chance to see them live um I'll, I'll link I'll link their new album but if you I know they're they just announced uh like uh UK and European tour yeah um but if you ever get the chance to see them live, I feel like unless you just like really hate that type of music, like you can't see them live and not become a fan because it's just like so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been listening to that a lot. Um, move over <laughs> Phoebe Bridgers. There's a new <laughs> sad album in town. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's so good. So, yeah, that's been on repeat as I've been like baking and making dinner and stuff. Um, and then, um, I have finally gotten around to watching all of Dimension 20 stuff, which have, have you ever watched any of that? No, I don't know um, what that is. So it's like, uh, a D&D thing. It's like a series of different D&D campaigns, um, like with, uh, through college humor. Um, okay. Like videos though? Yeah, they're they're videos. So you can also listen to it as a podcast, but oh, cool. um, it's cool. Like they're all sitting around a table, um, and they have like a really cool like little battle map. Um, and honestly, if anyone is interested in D anD D, it's like a really good way to learn how to play. I had initially watched the first few episodes of their first season, Fantasy High, but I like I kept getting stuck at one episode or just like getting distracted by like other things that were coming on. Mm-hmm. But I'm finally like watching it all the way through and it's just like very good and very fun. And they're just like all very creative and funny. Um, and they have a new season uh, that is just starting to come out. Uh, Mice and Murder that I've started watching as mm-hmm. well. So it's it's very fun and good. That's you know? cool. I love that. I, as you know, I've I've played Dungeons and Dragons like one time, maybe two mm-hmm. times. Um so it's not something I know a lot about, but I always, I, I don't know, I have like you and other friends that are really passionate about it. And so mm-hmm. it's one of those things I feel like that would be a good way to get into, you know, understanding how it works, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's perfect for that. And it's good because you can see it too. So you can like mm-hmm. see them calculate certain things or like see them decide or whatever. Um, and I mean, they're all very funny people. So it's and they're obviously very like creative and good at like improv and stuff so so it's very funny and it's it's good for learning shenanigans and kind of how to like bend the rules a little bit uh, and how to like apply them in funny ways so so yeah so I've been enjoying that yeah I haven't been watching that much stuff although the other day I randomly got really into (laughs) I just decided I had like a Saturday, long Saturday class. So I decided to completely mm-hmm. relax after that. And so I, yeah. for some reason, was just really feeling anything that had to do with like underwater. So I watched okay. like Night on Earth is, there's Night on Earth is on Netflix. And then there's another one that's on um, Apple TV. And they use these really incredible cameras in order to 
Mm. basically just like transition night to daytime so there's one there's one about lions it's really cool there's also one in the coral reef and mm. it's so interesting and so after i watched that i watched the rest of my octopus teacher which i apparently hadn't finished but that's a really great oh, okay. um, nominated you know documentary about this guy that has like um i don't know develops a, like a friendship with an octopus that lives in the ocean outside of his house and then I also watched Adrift again, which I'd already seen, but it's okay. an incredible survival story. Um, Shailene Woodley and Sam Hofton, or whatever his name is, are in it. And um, it's it's based on the true story of Tammy Af- Ashcraft, Tammy Ashcraft, who survived 41 days at sea after a shipwreck. Wow. wow. And it's incredible. I really like them. I don't know. I saw that movie in theaters a couple years ago and just like loved it. So I've watched it a couple times since. But yeah, that's my only, I guess, television watching that I've been doing. But I did something cool last week I wanted to share, which was um, mm-hmm. a Skillshare that I hosted for, I guess, for my school. It was mostly graduate students, though. Um, and so it was put on by someone who was in one of my classes last year. Um, she started it when she worked for the school. And it's just like this, you know, event to get all creative people together and have them present their different projects if they're looking Hmm. for partnerships or just like looking to find out. It's basically a community building exercise. So like um, some people find like partners out of it. Some people just like make friends um, or like can trade skills in order to like have one person sound edit what someone else edits and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was really exciting. It's just cool to see. I think also in the middle of finals and everyone's so busy, it's easy to get wrapped up in your own things. But it's really cool to see like all these other ideas that other people have and how easy it is to like get plugged into whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, I wanted to share that because I think that community building is so important. And sometimes, you know, you wouldn't have known that I did that based on my social media. I actually didn't reach out to anyone from it because I was the facilitator of the event. That was what I was focused on. But like, I think it's so, I don't know, important to have stuff like that that's happening because it makes people feel connected. And Mm -hmm. even though that wasn't directly related to climate, I just feel like there's so much of a connection between like ways of connecting people and and feeling connected to other people that are really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you want to do our socials? Sure. Um, okay, so you can follow us at World is Burning on Twitter and Instagram. We also have uh, TikTok at World is Burning with a G. Um, our extended show notes are on our website, which is worldisburning.com. There you can find all the different links. We have a bunch of different links to ways to get Silent Spring without using Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. Those will be on our website. Um, and yeah, check out our social media. That's where we post a lot of different extras. We have some like funny things we'll share this week for Earth Week and also just a lot of interesting conversations that I feel like are happening online, especially this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, our email is on our website, worldisburningpod at gmail.com. And I think that's it. Awesome. Well, then we'll see you next Wednesday. See you next Wednesday.